Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Wichita Mayor Brandon Whipple. He's been the subject of a kidnapping and murder plot, the target of an insane dark money attack, and managed his city through a pandemic. And he's only been in office for less than two years. We talk about all that, how he went from a troubled kid to a professor with a doctorate and mayor of a city far from his hometown. He's an impressive guy with the optimism and toughness necessary for leading in these crazy times. Enjoy. Mayor Brandon Whipple, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. So we've talked to over 100 elected officials, and people have had some pretty harrowing stories of serving an elective office. But I got to say, yours may be one of the most scary. Earlier this year, over essentially backlash over your mask mandate, uh, you had a guy who threatened to kidnap and kill you uh, and is now being prosecuted for it. Can you just talk a little bit about that experience? I, I think when we run for office, we expect little rough and tumble politics. I don't think any of us expect ourselves or our families to be put in harm's way. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just been a back, you know, last year, it's just been a tough year to, I, I think, navigate just the climate that, that was thrown at us as far as uh, the pandemic, uh, as far as just a hyper-partisan uh, presidential election. And, you know, frankly, in this particular instance, uh, it just, we had, at, at one point, once we passed the mask mandate, and, and we really had to, like our um, trajectory, according to the medical experts, showed that if we didn't do something, you, we would have had thousands of deaths at that time. So yeah, at the city level, we were, were able to pass a mask mandate once the county didn't do it. And also the, our state governor, she was pretty much stripped of her ability to combat COVID uh, with any type of measures. So they punted it down to the local level. I called an emergency meeting and we, we did pass a mask mandate. Well, that resulted in, in a protest at my house <laughs> during the 4th of July uh, which actually went okay. We actually put out a cooler with some water uh, and a sign for folks saying, hey, welcome to our house because it was hot out. And, you know, feel free to express your First Amendment rights. And, uh, you know, this is a day to celebrate our freedom. Uh, that part went okay. Uh, however, to what you're referring to, a few months later, uh, there uh, was someone who I guess had some military experience and was texting another city council person that I was having some problems with in using a code name, I think my code name is Wilma, uh, which I'm not sure why, you know, Wilma, right? Like, I'm not sure if I look like a Wilma, 
but he got really, it took it from the level of pretty much I'm angry at the mayor because of this down to a level of, uh, and he used some type of military terminology, but he was asking for my address. And apparently this guy had a plan to come grab me at my house, take me somewhere and kill me with a knife. Luckily, the city council person, uh, even though we, we've had problems, uh, he actually reported it to the detectives at, at City Hall. And they called me and told me what was going on. And, yeah, it's that's a tough conversation to have with your wife, <laughs> you know, where it's like, oh, hey, hon, like, not only do I, and I call her hon, I'm from New England, by the way. So, you know, I kind of grew up uh, in, in back of the bar that my mom would bartend at. So the way I talk to, you know, in the house is a little different. But in trying to tell Chelsea, my wife, that like, by the way, in addition to the protests, in addition to the craziness on social media, in addition to people coming to City Hall and also protesting, which, which I, I get and I support protests, this guy, the police are looking into someone who actually had a legitimate plan to kidnap and kill me. So yeah, just chalked <laughs> up to just a, a what was a wild first year uh, as mayor of Wichita. Many of us have spouses and partners who they didn't choose to run for office, but they get dragged into the, the life. I mean, how did how do you and your family think about the context of wanting to serve your community, but also having to endure? And we're going to talk more about some other experiences you've had having to endure attacks and then now threats. How do you all think about public service in your household? Well, I mean, it helps if you married a saint. <laughs> My wife is like an absolute saint uh, when it comes to just not only being supportive, but being just a top advisor. She's a doctoral student. She's someone uh, who's actually pursuing a, a doctorate of ministry and spiritual development. Uh, so it's, it's, it's somewhat in the mental health field. So I think she actually practices some of her mental health superpowers on me. Uh, I can tell when I can tell she can tell when I had a tough day at city hall or a tough day, you know, just, just dealing with a particular issue. Uh, and she will kind of snap into that mode of asking questions and talking, talking out, talking through it, which of course for folks who, who, who work in mental health, a lot of, a lot of the core uh, benefit is talking through stuff. Uh, so she's very good playing that role as well. And, you know, frankly, we got married uh, in part when we were dating, you know, 15, 16 years ago, because we were going to go to the Peace Corps together. Our trajectory, I guess, uh, overall was how can we make a difference? And, you know, coming back to that mindset that this isn't about us. Uh, this isn't, it's about what we can do to, to make a, a, a difference uh, as far as the greater good. So we kind of stay grounded in that mindset where it's not, hey, are you enjoying this or, or am I enjoying this? More of the conversation is, are we making a difference? What can we be doing to kind of give back? Uh, and that's how, you know, I, I think we share that same goal when we first started dating, you know, a hundred years ago. And that that's still at the forefront is how do we create a Wichita or frankly, you know, how do we create a, a world that's better for our kids uh, than, you know, it, it was when, when we were kids. Uh, so we're, we're pretty grounded in what we, and we're also, we also make jokes, like you got to use humor to get through it as well. We just have a, a kind of a quirky relationship when it comes to some of the, the 
craziness of, of public life. That's helpful. It'd be an interesting world if uh, all politicians married mental health professionals. Right. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe that's the solution. Maybe it's a way out of this. I mean, that's what we got to take the political science department or, or the legal college or whatever and put it right next to the uh, counseling department, I guess. And then we could have that, that natural order of uh, people pairing up uh, to, to help them through this. I mean, frankly, some of our politicians in Washington, if you look at some of the craziness, if, if they had access to maybe, maybe some mental health uh, or someone in the family who was looking after the mental health, maybe we'd Maybe we'd have better representation. Who knows? Oh, now, now we got an idea. <laughs> uh, see if Wichita State will uh, move some buildings around right. to, uh, to, to test it out. Easy fix. So actually, let's talk about that journey. As you mentioned, you're from New Hampshire, but found your way to Wichita through AmeriCorps. Have you always been sort of called to serve? And where do you think that comes from? And tell us that, tell us that journey. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, you know, when I was um, uh, when I was younger, I frankly, I think like a lot of young people, I, I really didn't have a lot of direction. I had a, I was considered a troubled kid to be honest, and frankly, I had some learning disabilities early on in high school that I don't think, although I think my teachers cared, I don't think they really knew how to address it, and so uh, I. I had a really good mentor. Um, I was good at my sport. I, I competed in Olympic style Taekwondo and uh, would go to the nationals every year and was actually pretty good at my sport. And my Taekwondo coach, he was a master's student at Boston University in social work. And I think he was using some of his social work powers on me when I was a young troubled kid who was trying to figure out what, what can I do you know, in, in this world w- without having, I guess, a really solid primary education. Uh, he was the one who talked me into trying college, going to college, taking those courses that got me caught up to everyone else and really pursuing that. Uh, and then while I was on that path, uh, my first year of college, that's when 9-11 hit. And I think a lot of folks in my generation uh, after 9-11 started thinking about what can we do to get back? You know, you had this wave of patriotism, but also this idea of service. And I knew that I failed an asthma test, even though I was an athlete in high school. I, I, I wasn't able to get into the army. Uh, I tried and wound up failing uh, an asthma test once they, they, kind of, they put, make you breathe in chemicals. So anyway, it was tough, but I knew that, that wasn't an option. And so I started researching and found AmeriCorps and thought, well, it'd be really great if I could take a year off and go work with other at-risk uh, kids who, like myself, might not know their potential. And I felt like I had an opportunity to pay it back for my Taekwondo coach, for the people who took that extra time to believe in me back when, frankly, I didn't believe in myself, to pass that on, right? And so I came out here to Wichita. I had a terrible New England accent. My wife talks about with uh, jokingly about you know how we first met and, and what I was like. And uh, I thought it would be a cool year to spend in the Midwest. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward, I wound up getting in-state tuition at Wichita State University when I tried to sign up to take an English class, I think. They wanted, I didn't want to fall behind. Uh, they accepted all my credits for transfer. The in-state tuition was actually half the cost of any school in New, New Hampshire or New England, really. And it um, meant that, uh, you know, the first-generation college student, it meant that AmeriCorps grant that you get at the end would actually pay for my next two years. Uh, so, I wound up saying and just falling in love with Wichita. Uh, it's, it's truly a place that uh, I, I think has 
a lot of opportunity for folks like me who are, who are just starting out and looking for a opportunity to prove myself. Tell us about Wichita. Like, like if I'm, you know, finding myself now as a remote worker and I'm looking at places where I may be able to afford a house or find a community, what's your pitch for Wichita? Yeah, Wichita is just an incredible city. It's the, I think it's the 49th largest city now in the country. We have about 390,000 people. Uh, However, we also consider the region, you know, the outskirts, smaller towns as part of our, our regional economy. That's a little over 500,000 people. Uh, Wichita actually, the largest city in Kansas, it uh, is known to be the air capital of the world. And what we mean by that is we have built more airplanes here coming out of Wichita than any city in the entire world has. However, if you kind of carry that skill set into um, advanced manufacturing, uh, we also are just incredible when it comes to any type of complex advanced manufacturing. We have one of the highest or top three highest uh, concentration of engineers. And then we also have uh, just just really great uh, workforce when it comes to machinists and when it comes to skilled labor. So Wichita has that history of being the air capital of the world, but like moving forward, we are looking toward other opportunities to really cash in on uh, or build upon, I guess, some of the historical precedents that the city has. So in addition to being the air capital and being really great at anything that has to do with advanced manufacturing, uh, we're also home to, you know, some household name businesses like Pizza Hut or Papa John's or uh, White Castle. These are businesses that actually got their start here in Wichita and then became international companies. So we have a really, I guess, historical precedence when it comes to entrepreneurship as well. We are pairing that entrepreneurial culture into the tech sector, you know, where which really matches that culture. Where here in Wichita, if you go and you take a chance, right? Like you're trying to start a business and let's say you fail, like many businesses do, we have the culture that says, okay, we'll do it again. You know, go start another business, keep going. So we actually encourage that type of entrepreneurship, which fits really well into that tech sector. But when it comes to the cost of living, that's another interesting thing. I think you mentioned Wichita and you, you mentioned houses as well. You know, my parents uh, grew up in New Hampshire. My mom was a waitress. My dad is a carpenter, the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. And frankly, they'll never own a house. Uh, we never owned a house growing up. Uh, they still rent. And here, because of the, the cost of property in New Hampshire, but also the, the amount of property taxes that folks would pay, uh, has just kind of just made it so they it's outside of their reach. And here in Wichita, uh, you know, the cost of living is to the point where you know, I'm 39 years old and, and I, we've bought our second house. It's one of those areas where that American dream when it comes to being able to buy your own house, being able to afford uh, to put your kids through college, being able to really, I guess, reach your potential or what your goal is in life uh, is actually achievable here, even if uh, you didn't happen to be born uh, in middle upper class uh, conditions. So that's one of the things that I think for me personally, I love most about Wichita. It felt like a place that I could meet my goals well, you know, based on my own work ethic and not so much on, you know, if I had a trust fund or some big inheritance coming my way. So I have so many questions. I had no idea that those pizza companies and White Castle started in Wichita. 
Do you have any sense as to what allowed those companies to emerge out of Wichita and then gain international prominence? You know, I, I just think that Wichita's always had this entrepreneurial culture. And, you know, it's interesting to talk about, right? Because we take it for granted here. And again, it's the idea that if you start out a business, you will have folks who will invest and will, will help you grow the business. It's the concept of having people around who understand business in general, like as an actual practice, and also having a sense of if you fail at, at this particular business here, uh, then, you know, well, what's your next idea? What's the next thing? Uh, getting beyond failure is part of our culture here is, well, in some areas of the country, you know, people are afraid to take risks because they are afraid to fail uh, and they wind up holding themselves back. Here in Wichita, we applaud risk takers. We want people to be successful and we will give them, uh, you know, whatever conditions they need in the, here to, to be successful. But if they're not, well, okay, well, what's your next idea? And that's, that's, uh, uh, pretty much the, 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 that culture that we have here that it has shown to be successful. That's so fascinating. I, you know, I'm just south of Silicon Valley and we have these delegations that come from all over the world. And oftentimes they're from countries that have much more strict cultures and, and real incentives against failing publicly and bringing shame to your family and and so big parts of the tours are often stories of people failing and it being not only okay but actually being celebrated like okay you failed your first company let me give you more money this time because now you've learned something so it's it's interesting how these micro cultures around entrepreneurship can be the deciding factor in 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 success, business success for, for not only individuals, but then for regions. Oh yeah. And you know, I talk about this quite a bit about the folks in our lives who I call them the Abbots. And my dad's one of these guys, like my dad doesn't listen to podcasts. So I'm just going to talk freely. I don't think he knows what a podcast is to be honest, but he's the type of guy where if I had an idea or something I wanted to pursue, he would say, well, yeah, but well, what about this? Well, yeah, but this, or yeah, but that. And in his mind, he's trying to protect me. He, it's not that he doesn't believe in me or think that I can do something. It's that he wants to protect me from failure. And I, I think that all of us have those folks in our lives who, in their minds, are looking out for us. Uh, but, you know, it also kind of holds us back. Well, I think that there, we're fortunate here in Wichita that the overarching business climate, culture, and also not only just government, but even the higher education institutions here we are more of the go pursue your idea. Uh, what what resources do you think you need in order to, to to make the most out of your your idea? And if it doesn't happen, then you know, okay, well, what's your next idea? And uh, like I said, I think it's very similar for what I hear about uh, in the tech sector, which is one of the reasons why we should be looking towards pairing into that technology sector. Uh, when we think about the future of Wichita in our economy. Can I ask, I'm curious, your parents, they have a, they have a son, struggles in school, goes off, becomes a, you have a, your doctorate, is a college professor and now mayor of this city, it must be about 1,500 miles away. Are they surprised? Are they like by your journey? This can't be... As you know, I have little kids, and I'm trying to imagine 
if this, if one of my kids ended up on this path, how shocked I'd be, I guess. What's your parents' reaction to you being elected mayor of Wichita? I think most people who, who know my life story and know me are pretty shocked at the trajectory because I've just had a string of good luck. And, you know, I guess luck is when opportunity and preparation meet, right? And Or, or meet with timing. And so... Yeah, like I, I love my mom to death. I, I don't know if she knew what I was doing when I was a legislator. <laughs> like until the day when I actually resigned from the legislature to go become mayor, um, I did take my parents up to the Capitol, and I think they kind of got it. I mean, these these are folks who who don't think a lot about like many folks about government. But when it, you know, my mom and dad were there when I defended my dissertation. Uh, I brought them with me. I can remember my dissertation person giving me some some grief to the point where. I thought I had to write 10 more pages. And then he told me like, Oh no, you're, you're done. You're a doctor. We're going to pass you. I'm just giving you advice. Like as if I was going to go back home and keep writing something. And I remember like looking at my dad and he's sitting there and he's in his, my mom told him to dress up and he's in his, uh, Patriots, uh, uh pullover hoodie and, you know, and nicer jeans. And he's, so he's just sitting there in a, in a hoodie. And he starts clapping really hard. And like, that was like also one of the first times I saw my dad like tear up. And so like to me, I, I'm doing this roughly for myself, but you know, I'm motivated to knock out goals. I think that's what martial arts teach you. So that's kind of my foundation. That was the first time when I thought like what I'm doing is actually really meaningful for my parents as well. Right. And that it, it took that moment for me to realize that. They were here when I got sworn in and they're supportive because frankly, you know, we, we don't come from much and there was expectation. Uh, so I wasn't pushed into college because of mom and dad, you know, had a college account for me and, and wanted these dreams for me. Uh, my mom actually gave me what I thought was really looking, you know, dad looking back, like, I don't know the type of advice I give to my boys. Uh, but my mom used to say, well, just follow your heart. Like, do what you think feels right. Make sure you pause before you do something and ask yourself, is this the right thing to do? So, you know, it, it, not a very structured path, but I do think that they, they might be a little blown away. Like my mom would tell stories about uh, when I was a second grader and had dyslexia and felt like I was the dumbest kid in the world every Friday because I couldn't do spelling tests. And, my, and I didn't know what was happening. And I did my mom. And she would take me between shifts working at the restaurant. And then before she went in to become a bartender, take me to a local library in our small town in New Hampshire and try to teach me to read. You know, and that's the stuff that, that really I fall back on when I think about what's at stake when it comes to ensuring that kids have the resource and parents, the resource to be successful in education today. Where, you know, that's, you know, I had my mom who was just trying to walk me through dyslexia and I think kids today deserve better than that. You know, my mom did her best she could, but the fact is we have a better understanding of this stuff now. And in public life, I know what it's like to be that kid who thinks he's not good enough academically. And I'm in a position where I can bring that experience to a round table of people who can make things happen and talk about this and talk about it from that, that experience of being a first-generation college student or being someone who has that self-doubt and to say, this is why we need to do it this way or that way is so that we can reach the, this next, uh, I guess, circle of folks uh, who would benefit from this, but think that what we're doing isn't for them. And that's, uh, 
those experiences, I think, have made me a better policymaker, but also it allows me opportunity to laugh at myself too, right? Like these are all humbling experiences that I've had. And I think as a mayor, if you can't be humble, if you can't kind of laugh at yourself, particularly in, in this day and age, then you're really not going to make it very far in, in, this, in this position. That is absolutely true. You're a Democrat in a, in a red state and, you know, in frankly, the, the hometown of the Koch brothers uh, who have led. Yeah, Mike Pompeo's mayor. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about how you, how you navigate, both when you were a state legislator and now as mayor, how you navigate the, the partisan politics that we're seeing at the national level that, that certainly must have an impact on your hometown. And how weird is it to be in that, that position? So when I ran for the Kansas legislature back in 2010, you know, I, I lost. Uh, it was, everyone lost in the state uh, as far as Democrats challenging Republicans. But I, what I learned through that experience, you know, we went out, we knocked about 10,000 doors. What I learned from that experience is people are just people, like just talk normal to folks. And uh, most of the time we agree on what we want to see out of, out of our leaders uh, and frankly, out, out of government. The second time I ran, uh, which I swore I'd never run again, but then we got new maps, redistricting, and the party said, hey, we have no one else uh, who could run, so why don't you give it a shot? You know, we actually focused on building relationships more than just knocking doors. So before it was based on the numbers, right? Like I want to knock 10,000 doors. Second time around, I wanted to knock 5,000 doors, but I wanted to actually learn more about people that, that were in the district. So I would show up, and I think Democrats have a problem with this. Is sometimes Democrats show up at your door, and they want to be the smartest person who's ever knocked your door. So they give you like charts or like palm cards or like resumes. And when it comes to building relationships, like uh, there's no one who will tell you that I didn't marry outside of my league when I met Chelsea. But what I didn't do was show up with a risk analysis or with a resume on our first date, right? Like I was in, like, hey, what are you interested in? And we talked about stuff that we both were interested in. And I think that if you want to get beyond the partisanship, you have to talk to voters and ask them and, and really, truly listen. Like, what are you interested in when it comes to your perspective on how government should be or particular issues that affect our community? So my goal was always to be the person that happens to be a Democrat, not to be the Democratic candidate. And the difference there is not like I'm running for my party or the values of my party. It's that it's secondary. Like you, you, you are voting for me if you vote for me. You're not voting for a party platform. And if you can build those relationships, even across the aisle, even with folks who are, uh, especially in the legislature, where it's a hyper-partisan environment, it's actually organized based on partisanship, on who has the votes to be speaker or chair. But if you can get beyond, I think, that party label by building relationships, uh, just talking with people, not about your bill, but about, hey, you got a six-year-old, I got a six-year-old too, and trading six-year-old stories, right? That type of stuff allows people to not just build relationships, but also I, I think we're striving for that benefit of the doubt, where if I need your help on a bill or looking to push something forward, the benefit of the doubt is you might not just think I'm trying to score political points. You might ask me, well, what does this do instead? And once you get beyond, I think the, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, the almost sportsmanship idea of this, where it's, it's almost like, hey, this is my team. But once you get beyond that and you start thinking more 
more globally about what are some of the impacts we could have, uh, that's when you can get stuff done. Now, as mayor, <laughs> I will tell you, yeah, I was never called liberal, I guess, until I ran for mayor. I was known in a legislature as being more moderate. And a lot of that had to do because I, I focused on economic development and trying to expand opportunities to folks to get into college or to, um, you know, I'm fighting for tax cuts that actually help working class people here in South Wichita. So some of the other issues that I think are much more polarizing, although, you know, we, we deal with those in the legislature, my focus was always on economic development or on access uh, to higher education or to job training or, or making the workplace a little more equitable. Uh, so, you know, when I ran for mayor, that's when I kind of get hit more with this partisan label. And I joke with people now where, you know, because I am the mayor, I am in a Republican city. If you look at the voter registration, and when I talk to some folks, I feel like they mean well, but they come up and they try to talk about partisanship. And it hits me that, man, I'm the first Democrat you've ever talked to, huh? <laughs> where, and so I'm like, I'm like an ambassador to my party, I think, with some folks who I wind up, you know, bumping into. And usually they're, they're well-meaning and they'll say stuff like, hey, you and I probably won't agree on much, but I like you because of this. So I like what you're doing. And always that first tidbit always says to me, you know, I don't have a lot of Democrat friends, <laughs> but I like this thing that you've done. And frankly, we've been successful. Uh, you know, we passed a non-discriminatory ordinance this year. The, that, uh, you know, we, we got that through. It was a, my, my uh, council is five Republicans and two Democrats. And after, and it had to have been like two months worth of, of I guess, craziness. We, we, we got that through and I actually got all but one person to vote for it. So, you know, we can be forward thinking when it comes to policy while not so much, I guess, riding that partisan label that's a shortcut for people to try to determine what your values are. You know, it's, it, it feels like I don't know a lot about you, but I know you're a Democrat, so I think I know something about you. I'm trying to let people know more about who I am and my position and what I'm going to fight for and what I'm going to do instead of having them rely, I guess, on the letter next to my name to make a determination on how I would govern. I want to ask, because we've known each other a little while through the New Deal, and you always struck me as like just a good, decent person who, you know, is trying to get in politics to do the right thing, is, is in a red state and a red city and so working across the aisle and and then when i was sort of reading about you and i'm reading not only about the threat that we talked about earlier but actually this incredibly vicious anonymous campaign that defamed you didn't just attack you for a position didn't just attack you for you know a, a vote but actually made up an entire story about sexual harassment about you. How do you sort of then come back and be like, okay, this is happening from, and it's affiliated with some of my Republican colleagues, but I'm still going to wake up and just sort of not think about our parties and just keep working on the policies going forward. I mean, can you tell a little bit of that story and then how you, how, how do you maintain the mindset to, to keep reaching across when it feels like occasionally the other side is, is sucker punching you? In that particular situation, that was 
I don't, I mean, that was just above and beyond. Like we have a lawsuit still going and Kansas slander laws are pretty, pretty tight. And we have a lawsuit going because that was textbook slander. Uh, what they actually did is they hired actresses to actually tell a story, a script from a Republican senator, a story of sexual harassment that was supposedly or from a Republican senator in the state legislature before I was ever elected. And I was a Democratic House member, but this is before I got there. And it was on YouTube. And they were, you know, they, they did a shell corporation over, I think, in um, New Mexico. And they wound up like laundering money through this nonprofit that was a shell as well. Uh, and it really unraveled because there was just just enough cracks in the wall, I guess, where we were able to, you know, like like the woman who was an actress came forward to her mother and said, hey, I think I was in that commercial. I, I thought they were doing a PSA on domestic violence. Well, mom knew someone who was in the same political circle, I guess, that I was a former candidate, uh, reached out to him. And frankly, like, that would have been a really... Uh, it just unprecedented attack. And I, I remember thinking about, you know, we, we and luckily the, the media was very good at connecting the dots as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just remember thinking a couple of things. First, uh, we got to clear this up because I got three kids and I don't want them Googling their last name and, you know, seeing, seeing this story that w- was made up about me. But also it gets back to just the fact that I'm not in this for myself. It's not about me. And sometimes you got to remind yourself that like, this is not personal. It's not about me. This is service work. You know, if I, if I don't make the cut, if I don't win, you know, I, I have an exit strategy. I, I'll, I'll go teach. My goal is to inspire that next generation to also go into public service. But it was tough because we got, we got a lot of death threats during that time as well. And we got, it's tough because like in that particular case, it, it did two things. It showed that we were winning which is unheard of, by the way, we were outspent like four to one, like this is an incumbent Republican mayor. I personally didn't think that we were going to make it as far as we did, but I knew that Wichita deserved a choice when it came to, you know, who was going to leave the city. So I signed up and, and thought we were given that choice. But when it got so nasty and so dirty to this unprecedented level, it's a gut punch, but also yeah, it, it, it's a reminder that it's not about me or my comfort zone. It's about moving Wichita forward. And we're lucky we got through that to the point where, you know, we were able to kind of crack the code on who was behind it and what really happened. And the media out here, our newspaper uh, uh, reported on it. And then when it started to unravel, like, as you mentioned, you know, there were like three or four elected officials that were behind it and just crazy to an extent because like, I know these guys, like these are folks that I've worked alongside, sponsored bills with, helped out, you know, and to know that this whole time they hate me this much, I think was a bigger gut punch than what was being said, you know, that all this time where we worked together, they were willing to not just beat me in an election, but to lie and try to destroy my last name and the last name of my sons. Uh, that was the worst part of it. Right. <laughs> but the, good part moving forward is, you know, is how it unraveled. And it's kind of a warning to folks, I, I guess, politically that, you know, you, there, there's, there, there's a bit of an honor system here. You don't hit someone like in martial arts, you hit someone as hard as they hit you, you fight fair. That, that was unfair. And because of that, 
you know, none of those folks are, are still in office right now. Um, I think that that backfired on them because we had just enough room. You know, you, you kind of think jujitsu, right? Like if you leave enough space, you might be able to get out of the hole to reverse it. And it was just enough room where, you know, the, the media was able to crack the case and, and expose uh, this really awful situation. I'm glad that political karma has, has come back around. I still hope you win your lawsuit because I think there has to be sanctions for for that kind of impact. As you said, that not only impacts you, but it impacts your your kids and it impacts the voters and their right to have truthful information given to them as they're trying to make a decision in a democracy. Well, and in addition, I mean, you know, I get... Like I'll slam on politicians just like the next person, right? Like I get like uh, politicians aren't looked at the greatest. If we want good people to run for office, if we want the type of people to run for office who have opportunities to do other things, you can't have stuff like this happening. You know, you got to fight fair. You got to have the rules laid out on uh, what's acceptable and what isn't. Because not only in individual situations do you see this type of stuff that you know it's just it, it, it looked at it as just over the top, but also you, you start to limit the pool of people who want to run for office because to them, that type of negativity is just not worth it. So that was the other part about this is that, you know, I want to encourage that free market of ideas. Like if we take free market principles and we overlap it with what we do in the public sector, our free market product is our ideas. And I want to be in a space where I have an idea and I go out and I think it's a, and if someone else has a better idea to get to the goal that we want to achieve, then beat me, then do it. You know, like, okay, if your idea is better than mine, I will, I will do a 180 and I will back your idea. And that's what we want. We want the type of people running for office that once they're there, they bring the best and brightest ideas to the front so that through debate, you know, the best ones rise to the top and become policy. And we're not going to get that if we don't, I guess, clean up how we discuss issues and kind of clean up some of this campaign stuff that result in good people not running for office. Give me a couple of those ideas that you're excited about that, that you're working on for your city. We're actually the first city in Kansas or any level of government to set up a it's an application process to access ARPA funds. So what we are doing is we put about $5 million into three different pots for affordable housing, uh, for job training, and and then also in small business growth and entrepreneurship. And so some of the stuff that I'm doing is to figure out who's working in these spaces that would do a better job than we are as far as elected officials. So going out to different communities and trying to talk about in the beginning of the year, we're going to have these applications open up and try to talk people through how they could fit into these boxes so they themselves can not only do the work that I think that, you know, cities want to see happen, but also as nonprofits or professional organizations, we can keep them strong while, while, while the economy is recovering from, from the pandemic. So some of the stuff we're doing, it focuses on those areas, but also, you know, just uh, there's other like smaller things that we can be doing, such as, yeah, I'm working with the Women's Empowerment uh, Organization or the WE and asking, you know, they've, they've come and said, hey, well, if you do this or that, it's going to make a better environment for women to get involved in board appointments. And I've pretty much given them a free 
free run at it where just tell me what to do. Like you guys are the experts. Uh, and so we have been able to, you know, take away on, on our applications to work for the city just to knock out the section where I asked about your past salary. Uh, Cause I don't care what you made in the past, you know, like if, if you have the skill set to be in this position, then that skill set should determine the, you know, your salary. So little things like that all the way to, you know, getting $15 million with the ARPA funds out there to something small that we, I thought it was small, but it turned out to be, I, I think more of a, a good gesture for equality. Uh, we, for the first time last year, had this incredible pride event in the middle of our city at our, one of our newest parks. And I remember talking to a young man during this time, during Pride Month, uh, and it was a concert. We had all folks who were performing who are members of the local LGBTQ community just to show off this community and the talent. And I remember this young guy, he's probably like 25. He told me he's been coming to these Pride events since his early 20s. And that they always seem like they're hidden in a corner somewhere. They were at like a different park or someplace that was kind of out of the way. And what it felt like to come out of work and to see in the very center of downtown this huge event that was celebrating uh, the LGBTQ community. That conversation actually, you know, really led into, all right, let's take it a step further. Let's get a non-discriminatory ordinance on the books. So, you know, we fought for that and we had to fight quite a bit because there were some folks who I think don't recognize LGBTQ uh, rights and they were very vocal. And, you know, but in the end, we were able to, to overcome that and to have a six to one vote. So I, I think that the spectrum is some stuff we do is meaningful. Some stuff is more practical and some stuff is more, uh, but overall, you know, if you mix it together, uh, we, we can actually grow the city into the type of city that people expect. I love it. I love it. Now I'm going to ask my last question. I've been asking all these mayors is, so I have 24 hours in Wichita. What should I do? Give me, give me, give me the best, best 24 hours I could possibly have. So, you know, you, you want to come and check out our baseball stadium. Uh, we have a brand new double a baseball stadium and franchise that it's just incredible. It's in the center of downtown. Then you our trolley and go into the entertainment district. And we, really mean it when we say we get the best restaurants in the world right here in Wichita, uh, some incredible places to, to eat. And then also you got to check out our local music scene. If you head over, we got a cigar bar slash martini bar right in our old town area uh, that has live music, uh, really shows off our talent that we have. And if you get on the right day, like if you are at the final Friday of the month, uh, after all that, you can go on the art crawl. Uh, Wichita is actually known for you know, throughout our history of producing incredible artists. So if you are here at the right time, you could go where all of our both private and public art facilities are showing off their art and you're meeting the artists and also, uh, you know, you're able to uh, get some wine along the way or some, some spirits and, you know, crawl on down to the, to the next exhibit. That sounds awesome. I, I noticed you didn't say, uh, and eat a white castle, uh, no, <laughs> uh, at, at midnight. You know, what's crazy is like White Castle's not here anymore. <laughs> That's the uh, like they started here, and they're actually. I don't think we have a White Castle here anymore. We do have a a Pizza Hut, and we had the very first Pizza Hut actually on campus in front of. I think it's in front of the business school over at Wichita State University. 
which is one of the top business schools in the state of in the state of Kansas. So yeah, campus is also a place I'd recommend people go check out. It's uh, you know, Wichita is just has a lot to offer. It's one of these like really good kept secrets, I think, in our country where people don't think of Wichita at the same level as they think of some of, the, of our comparable cities like Des Moines, Iowa, or Tulsa or Kansas City. Uh, but Wichita, as far as fun and as far as opportunity, is right up there. Awesome. Well, Brandon, I appreciate your service. I hope, I mean, I hope for all of us that uh, some of these crises go away. I also hope some of these incredible attacks cease and you're able to just govern and do the hard work that your community requires. But I'm grateful to have you in the New Deal. I'm grateful to have you on the podcast and I'm grateful to have you in office. So thank you so much. Of course. And I'm just thankful to everything that uh, the New Deal does and that you do. Uh, to bring folks, uh, elected people together to, to share some of these war stories and let us know that, you know, we're, we're all have the same goal in mind to, to make our communities better. Uh, but there's some bumps along that road that we're able to chat through. So I appreciate uh, everything New Deal is doing and uh, being on this podcast. Hey, thank you. And, and have a great holiday. You as well. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.